Okay, let's open up our Bibles or scroll in your electronic device, if that's what you're using, to the book of Luke, chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 28 to 44. This, this is a fairly large chunk today. We're going to be looking at the king's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So let's ask God's blessing. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come again, and we would not be remiss just to assume, Lord, we want to ask especially that you would come and make your word plain and clear and compelling and convicting if necessary, and that, Lord, you would instruct us and make us the people that would bring great pleasure to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. I love the providence of God, and by that I mean I love to see God's unseen, invisible hand working in our circumstances to bring about His purposes. Last Monday, I opened up my Bible to read the text for this Sunday, and I thought, this text is about Palm Sunday. What's coming up on Sunday? Palm Sunday! <laughs> And I thought, how did that happen? I'm going to be preaching on Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday. How perfect is that? And I just thought, Lord, that you did it again. That's your providence. I, you know, two and a half years ago when we studied the book of Luke, I didn't plan it all out so that on March 20th of 2016, I would be preaching on Palm Sunday. It just happened. The Lord did it. So I, I love that. Love to see him do that. But we've been watching the Lord as he's traveling to Jerusalem. He knows that when he arrives in Jerusalem, it will be his hour. His hour will finally have come. 
and he will suffer and die for sinners and then he'll rise again from the dead and he's been explaining this to his disciples over and over now they have deaf ears to this they just don't get it they can't comprehend it but he's telling them over and over what's about to happen he has just stopped in Jericho which is a smaller town about 15 miles east of Jerusalem and so all the pilgrims that are coming from Galilee go south over on the eastern side of the River Jordan then they pass over Jordan and they come through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem so Jesus is making his way in the very same way that all the other pilgrims are going and he stops in Jericho because there are a couple of people there that he intends to save there are two blind beggars that he heals and gives them their sight and gives them salvation and then he calls out of a man he calls a man out of a tree named Zacchaeus calls him by name calls him out spends a day at his house and during that day he transforms this man he's the most hated most despised man in Jericho Jesus picks him and makes him a trophy of grace and he turns from being a greedy selfish con artist to a generous liberal unselfish man all in one day Jesus is transforming grace so he's got these trophies of grace in Jericho and now it's time to move on he continues to travel the remaining 15 miles and he arrives in two small little villages Bethany which is right near Bethphage he arrives probably Friday afternoon right before sundown because at sundown the Sabbath would begin and no traveling would be permitted he comes there and he's staying with some friends of his Lazarus whom he had recently raised from the dead and Mary and Martha his sisters on the Sabbath they had a quiet day resting before the Lord but Saturday evening there's a special supper held in Jesus's honor it's at Simon the leper's house now we don't know anything about Simon the leper we can conjecture that he probably was a leper that Jesus healed and out of gratitude he wants to uh, throw this supper to honor his Lord who had healed him of leprosy so there that evening is the time when Mary takes a bottle of very costly perfume breaks it anoints the feet of Jesus Jesus says she's actually doing that for my burial so all that's happening Saturday night the following day on Sunday Jesus sends two of his disciples out to get a colt they go to a nearby village bring the colt back and then Jesus rides into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday as he comes into Jerusalem we're gonna see two different two very different emotions that took place on that day one is the emotions that the disciples had the emotions that they displayed were joy joy and excitement but then there's a very different emotion that Jesus displays his emotion is sorrow and grief so polar opposites Jesus is grieving over the city the disciples are excited and you know rejoicing and shouting and praising the Lord so let's go through first of all and talk about the joy of the disciples and then we'll take a look at Jesus and the emotion that he was displaying this day so first of all the joy of the disciples Jesus tells his disciples two of them to go into a nearby village and they're gonna see a colt upon whom no one had ever ridden before this is an unbroken colt the foal of a donkey and uh, when they find this colt just untie it and bring it back and Jesus says well but if 
somebody sees you doing that and says, why are you untying that colt? They might have thought that he was going to be, they're stealing this animal. Like that probably did happen often in the ancient world. Just say, well, the Lord has need of it. And so they went into the village. They found this colt right off. Uh, no one had ever sat upon it, an unbroken colt. They started untying it. Someone did ask them, why are you doing that? They said, well, the Lord has need of it. And so they gave permission and brought the colt back. And there are several things that I'm starting to see as I am working my way through this passage. The first one is that Jesus is taught by the Holy Spirit. You say, what do you mean, Brian? What I mean is that Jesus seems to have supernatural knowledge of various things that, that are going on around him during his ministry. You've noticed that, haven't you? He knew Zacchaeus' name. How did he know that? He'd never met Zacchaeus before. Supernatural knowledge. He told Peter, go fishing and you're going to catch a fish and it's going to have a coin in its mouth and we'll pay our taxes with it. How did he know that? <laughs> um, he, he approaches Nathaniel. He'd never met him before. He says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. He knew the character of this man he'd never met before. How did he do that? Uh, he stops at a well and he talks to this woman and he says, you know, you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now, you're not married to him. Supernatural knowledge. How did Jesus do that? You know, we're, we're kind of mesmerized by this ability to know things that he, he could not have known any other way other than a supernatural way. Um, some people explain it by saying, well, Jesus was God. And because Jesus was God, he was omniscient. Meaning he had all knowledge about everything because God is omniscient. And that makes sense except for a couple of passages like Philippians 2 verse 6 which says that he existed in the form of God, but did he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant and was found in the likeness of men. Now, what does that mean? He emptied himself. I believe what that means. He never ceased to be God, but he gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes while he was a man on earth. I believe that's what that means. He was God and always was God, never ceased to be God, but he was willing to empty himself of the right and the privilege to exercise his divine attributes while he lived on the earth. So in a re very real way, he was like us. He was a man dependent upon the Holy Spirit to enable him to do what the Father wanted him to do. One of the reasons I think that is because of Matthew 24, verse 36, where Jesus is talking about the second coming. And this is a verse you know well. He's speaking about his second coming, and he says this, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Jesus said, I don't know when I'm coming back. I don't know the day, I don't know the hour. If Jesus is omniscient at this point in his life, then he knows the day and the hour, because he has all knowledge but he does not know the day or the hour he's going to return. That tells me that he did not um, exercise the independent use of the attribute of omniscience that he had before he came into the world. He was willing to set that aside and live as we have to live, dependent upon the Holy Spirit. That's my conclusion as I wrestle with these verses. So if that's true, that he gave up the independent exercise of omniscience, how did he seem to know these things that were so supernatural? My conclusion is that he was 
exercising the gift that we find listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 of the word of knowledge. The gift of the word of knowledge. Um, this is tricky because the Bible never defines the gift of the word of knowledge. And so I have to be a little bit tenuous when I say this is what I think it is. Because nowhere is it defined in Scripture. But we find something like this going on all over the place in the Bible. You find Peter um, calling out Ananias and Sapphira and knowing what they had done. You find prophets like Elisha and Elijah knowing supernatural things in the Old Testament. It's not just Jesus that did this. It's Peter, the disciples. It's the prophets of the Old Testament. It appears to me, it seems to me, that this is the working of the gift of the word of knowledge in the life of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus didn't do any of his signs until the Spirit came upon him at his baptism. And so here, we find him just exercising the working of the Holy Spirit uh, knowing things that the Father is telling him so that he can accomplish the Father's works while he's ministering on earth. Now, I know this is a difficult issue that Christians disagree on, whether these gifts still exist today or not. Right? You have charismatics and non-charismatics. You have cessationists and you have continuationists. I don't think that this needs to be something that divides God's people, even though we are going to disagree. Not everyone's going to see things eye to eye. As I've wrestled with this, the two conclusions I've come with is this. I can't see any biblical evidence that these gifts are going to cease. I, I, I haven't been able to find that in Scripture. And secondly, I do have 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 to 13, which seem to indicate that these gifts will continue until Christ returns. Because he says there, when the perfect comes, the partial, and he's talking about partial gifts, will pass away. When will the perfect come? When we see face to face, he says there in 1 Corinthians 13. So based on a careful study of 1 Corinthians 13, my conclusion is that the Bible does give support to the idea that these gifts that we read about in Scripture will continue until Christ returns. Now, does that mean they're going to be just as strong today as they were in the first century? Not necessarily. Are they going to be just as prevalent here in America as they are on the mission field? Not necessarily. I think God is sovereign in the way He distributes these gifts. And we, we can't force His hand. We are completely dependent upon Him to do what He is going to do. Um, he distributes severally to each one as He wills. But I don't think we can discount and say that this will never happen again. Just, you know, it happened in Jesus' life. It happened in Peter's life. But it's not going to happen today. I just simply can't make that claim. I think we need to be open that the Spirit of God can still do the same things today that He did in the first century. So that's the first thing I, I see here in Luke 19. The second one, not only is Jesus taught by the Spirit, but Jesus is Lord of creation. I see that because He rides on a colt. What kind of a colt is He riding on? How many people have ever ridden on this colt before? Nobody! <laughs> What's true about an animal that has never been ridden upon? He's wild. He's like a bucking bronco. Now, I'm not a horseman, and I'm not a cowboy, but at least I know this. You don't just get on the back of a colt that's never been ridden and expect a gentle, peaceful ride. So here comes Jesus riding on this donkey, this foal, this colt, an unbroken animal, and yet, of course, it's not bucking him off. That animal is submissive to Jesus' rule. Um, he's Lord of creation. 
Isn't that interesting? He could tell Peter, um, Peter, let down your nets on the other side of the boat and you'll have a catch of fish. And Peter says, Master, we've been toiling all night and we have caught nothing. In other words, I'm the fisherman. <laughs> you might be a rabbi. I'm the fisherman and I know about, I know about fishing and we, we tried. We haven't caught anything. But at your bidding, I will let down the nets. And they caught so many fish, they couldn't even haul them into the boat. There's so many. So Jesus is Lord of creation. He's Lord of the animal kingdom. They obey his will. He's Lord of the winds and the waves. He can say, hush, be still. And the winds stop and the waves calm down. He's the Lord of creation. A third thing I see from this passage is that Jesus is humble and unpretentious. He's humble. You see, what's going on here is that a prophecy is being fulfilled. It's Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And if you want to look back to there, it's, it's pretty easy to find Zechariah because go to the book of Matthew and just keep going to your left a little bit. Go past Malachi to the next book. And chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, in those days, in the first century, when a conquering general came back to the city of Rome, they would have this official grand parade for him. And so he would be coming back with, in this elaborate parade, riding in a golden chariot. And he would be exhibiting the spoils of his victory and all the prisoners that he had taken in war. The priests would be burning incense in his honor. And the, all the people would be praising him and shouting his praises as this general came back to Rome. And at the end of that parade, they would lead all of the prisoners to an arena where they'd have to fight with wild beasts for their life. It was, it was actually entertainment in the first century to watch people being killed by wild beasts, lions and tigers and such. So compare that kind of a entry into Rome with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. There's no golden chariot. Uh, there's no priests burning incense. There's no wild matches in some arena. Here comes Jesus. He doesn't even have a white stallion to ride on. He's riding on a donkey, a humble entrance into Jerusalem. It just shows us from Zechariah 9.9, it says, humble, mounted on the foal of a donkey. You know, Jesus, to my knowledge, only describes his character one place in the Gospels. It's Matthew 11.28-30, where he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am what? I'm gentle and humble in heart. And the more Christ-like you and I become, the more gentle and humble we will become. Because that's the character of our Lord. He's a gentle and he's a humble man. If we're boastful and egotistical and prideful, that's not like the character of our Lord Jesus. He's just the opposite. Just He's humble and unpretentious. Um, a prideful person... They're all about themselves. A humble person is all about others and all about his Lord. 
A third thing that I see from this passage in Luke 19, Jesus here is proclaiming himself as the Messiah. He's proclaiming himself as the Messiah. This is the only time in the Gospels we see Jesus riding an animal. Every other time he's walking or he's riding in a boat someplace. But he's purposefully riding on this donkey. He makes a decision, right? He sends his disciples to get it, to bring it back. He gets on that animal. He's making a decision to ride into Jerusalem this particular way. Why is he doing that now? Also, whenever Jesus has done miracles in the past, he always warns the people not to talk about it, to keep it hush-hush. You realize that, right? I can give you a few examples of that. Um, Matthew chapter 8, verse 4. When Jesus heals the leper, he says, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Or Matthew 9.30. Jesus there heals two blind men. Their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. I mean, these are just two samples of, of many, many times where Jesus does something miraculous and he says, but just don't talk about this. Now, why would he do that? Why would Jesus say, don't talk about this great miracle I've just done? I've thought about that a lot and been stumped, you know, but I, I think it probably has to do with this. If they did uh, proclaim abroad these great signs that he was doing, that's going to cause an untimely Con conflict with the religious leaders of that day, Jesus knows that his hour has not yet come yet. And that's going to force this, this decisive conflict between him and the religious leaders, and it would lead to his arrest, his execution, and Jesus says, no, it's not time, I'm on a divine timetable. And so he says, keep this quiet, but here he's not telling him to keep it quiet anymore. In fact, before he never allows his big public demonstration here, he's not only allowing it, he's encouraging it. The, the Pharisees are rebuking the disciples, and they're saying, Lord, rebuke them, tell them to stop. And Jesus says, hey, if, if they were to be silent, I tell you, the stones would cry out. In other words, this praise and this celebration is unstoppable. It's unquenchable. Before, hush, hush. Now, it's got to happen. It, it has to happen. So something very different is happening at this point. And I believe it's because Jesus knows that in just a few short days, he must suffer and die on the Passover. And so this is the time now when he must proclaim himself as the Messiah publicly before all of the Jewish people. This is his time. In fact, that's what happened. The people start to proclaim him as the Messiah. They call him the king. And I'm putting all the different gospels together here. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew says, Hosanna to the son of David. That's a messianic title. The king, another messianic title. So Jesus is putting himself on display as their Messiah, and he's doing it in a very public way because he knows this will lead to his eventual sufferings and death for the sins of his people. Let's look at another one from Luke 19. We find that Jesus is given homage by the people. What happens is that when they bring the colt to him, they start to put their coats on the back of that colt. And then they take their coats and they spread them in the road. And even that's not enough. They start to cut down leafy branches 
The book of John says there were palm branches, and they're taking these palm branches and spreading them in the road, and Jesus is riding over those coats and riding over those palm branches, and some people are holding the palm branches, and they're all shouting and waving the branches, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! So, homage, worship, deference, reverence is being expressed to Jesus. He's the king, and they're laying these coats down and these branches as a way of saying, we submit to your kingship. We want you to be the king, the ruler here. It's almost like the, the coat represents them. And rather than put themselves to have the animal ride over, they put their coat down there saying, we're willing for you to rule over us. Giving homage to Jesus Christ. Same thing must happen in our life, doesn't it? We need to, figuratively speaking, take our coats, put them in the way and say, okay, Lord Jesus, come on over. You're my Lord, and I'm your slave. I'm your servant. Speak, and your servant will do your bidding. I unconditionally surrender to your lordship. You know, that's part of being brought into the kingdom, is submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Empty professions of the Lordship of Jesus mean nothing. Why do we say that? Don't say it unless you're going to do what Jesus says you must do. So obedience is critical. Another thing we see here in this passage, Jesus is praised by His disciples. Look at verse 37. As soon as He was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Now this praise has many facets to it. Number one, it was unanimous praise. It says the whole crowd of the disciples. The whole crowd. So this wasn't just like a third of the group. This was 100%. Everybody was into the praise. <laughs> they were all involved. And the only reason I bring that out is because I think it is a glorious thing when God's people today, when the whole crowd of the disciples praise God joyfully. And I always think it's very sad when some people don't participate in praising God. They will just sit there or stand there with their arms crossed, and they won't even sing. They just kind of watch. They endure it until it's over. That's a sad thing. <laughs> now, there, there are aspects of this praise that we should not emulate, but there are aspects, I think, that we should. And one of them is we should praise God unanimously. So here at the bridge, let's all get involved in praising God. Let's all sing. Let's all pray. Let's all raise our voices to Him. Secondly, this praise was joyful. Verse 37 says, The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully. This was a joyful celebration, a joyful experience. Have you ever recognized how many times especially in the Psalms, where praise and joy are connected together. It's all over the place. In other words, praising God was meant to be a joyful experience for God's people. Let me just read you one sample of that from Psalm 95. Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. So you, you catch the, the flavor. Joy and praise are mingled together as they ought to be. 
So when we praise the Lord here at the bridge, let's, let's expect and, and seek not only, not only praise, which is good, but joy glorifies God because you're taking delight in the person of God. I think John Piper is right. God is more glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. In other words, if we go through a cold, detachless, unemotional, unfeeling time of praise, that is not nearly as glorious to God as when we are in it and we are wrapped up in His and taking pleasure and delight in Him. Amen? Thirdly, this praise was loud. It's unanimous, it's joyful, it's also loud. It says right there in Luke 19. They began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Now when we think of the triumphal entry, I don't think we should think of it as like a polite hand clap at the end of your daughter's <laughs> piano recital that lasts about 10 seconds. We should think 1988 World Series, Game 1, the Dodgers and the A's, Dennis Eckersley is on the mound for the A's, the unstoppable closer. Two outs, bottom of the ninth. The Dodgers are down four to three. They're down by one run. Dennis Eckersley walks a man. The tying run is on first base. The winning run is coming up to bat, and they send a pinch hitter, Kirk Gibson, who's been injured in both legs. I saw this when it happened on TV. I remember this. Some of you guys are too young probably to remember 1988, but I remember this date. Dennis or Kirk Gibson gives up to back a, a left-hander against Dennis Eckersley. The count goes to three and two, bottom of the ninth, two outs, and he hits a next pitch over the right field bleachers. And what do you think is happening in the stands when that happens? <laughs> Bedlam. <laughs> People are standing and they're jumping and they're shouting and they're crying and they're hugging. I mean, it, it goes nuts because they've won the first game of the 98, 1988 World Series. And so I think when we think about this crowd here in the triumphal entry, don't think about a little smattering of applause. Think about Dennis or Kirk Gibson hitting that home run. No. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying that's the kind of praise this was. They were shouting with a loud voice, waving palm branches. I mean, it was like, it was like being in a game. So one of the reasons that I think we're a little intimidated and maybe a little afraid of loud praise is because we feel it's irreverent. I mean, I know that for myself. Will this be irreverent if I'm loud? But I, I don't think that can be the case. Because does anything irreverent take place in heaven? I can't imagine it being irreverent. But I do know that the praise in heaven is very loud. <laughs> uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, says that the sound of the people there who are crying out, Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, is like the sound of many waters. He's describing waterfalls. And if you've been next to the Niagara Falls, you can't hear the person next to you. It's deafening. So this is talking about this great crescendo of praise to the Lord. So that tells me, okay, it's not necessarily irreverent to, to be excited and joyful and happy and spirited, let's call it, in our praise of God. This was loud praise. And you know... I wrote down one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in the Psalms where we're commanded to shout to God with a loud voice. I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. I don't know that I need to go through all of these, but Psalm 33, verse 3. Sing to him a new song. 
Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Psalm 47, 1. Here it is. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. Psalm 66, verse 1. Shout joyfully to God all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. And so I could go on. There's Psalm 81, 1, Psalm 95, 2, Psalm 98, 4, Psalm 100, verse 1. These are all commands. And there's other verses in the Psalms where not, it's not a command. It just says, this is what God's people do. They shout joyfully with a, a loud noise. So, if at times here at the bridge our praise is loud, we, we ought not think something's wrong. That's just biblical. Um, we might have to get used to it. It might not feel comfortable to us, but in heaven we're going to have to get used to it eventually. <laughs> we're going to have to get used to it eventually. But you know what? I think it's also wonderful when our praise is meditative and can be quiet and you can be still before the Lord. I, I think we need to try to incorporate many aspects of praise and worship to God because there's value in all kinds. Like, for example, last Sunday, Oleg put on a, a wonderful hymn while we had communion. Um, do you remember the name of it? And Can It Be. That's right. Beautiful hymn. Talking about the glory of Christ and His suffering for us, for sin. So it was loud praise, joyful praise, unanimous praise. It was also biblical praise. Look back at Luke 19. The disciples here are recalling Zechariah 9.9. 9. And let's just recall again how Zechariah 9.9 begins. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. These people believed that Zechariah 9.9 was being fulfilled before their very eyes, and so they were obeying Zechariah 9.9, which says to rejoice greatly and to shout in triumph. And so they did. They were praising biblically. They were obeying the Word of God. There's also another scripture that was being fulfilled, and that's Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, which says, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the people were quoting that verse. They were quoting Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Only they changed it to Hosanna. Instead of saying, O Lord, do save, we beseech you, they just said, Hosanna, because that's what Hosanna means. Save now, we pray. Okay? So they're quoting this scripture as they are shouting to the Lord. All of which tells me that their praise was biblical. It was based on the Word of God. And our praise will never be better than when the Word of God becomes the fuel that ignites it. It's like the wood that you put to start a fire. You need the wood, and the wood is the Word of God. You can have empty hypocritical praise if you just go through the motions, but when it's based on truth about who God is and what God has done, you're going to have a strong fire of praise. Now, the, the last aspect of this praise is that it was misguided. It was misguided because they were praising the Lord for what they thought Jesus was about to do, and they were wrong about that. When they said, save now, we pray, they weren't talking about save us from our sins. They were talking about save us from the Romans. 
They were all excited because they thought this was going to be an earthly political savior coming into Jerusalem, and now he was going to overthrow the Romans, and all right, everything's going to be great from now on. So they were misguided, they were wrong, they were erroneous in their understanding of what was happening. So you're probably thinking, well, okay, Brian, well, if that's true, then should we even follow their example in anything that they did? Doesn't it all just fall to the ground if they were misguided? I don't think so, because here, here's my question. If they praised God so lavishly when they misunderstood the intent, should we praise God less lavishly when we do understand the truth? That makes no sense. It's like when the cults go out and, and spread their gospel, does that mean that we shouldn't do it just because the cults do it? I mean, what, the old saying goes, will you do for the truth what the cults do for a lie? Shouldn't we be more zealous than people who have a false gospel to spread? Shouldn't we be more zealous and more um, enthusiastic in our praise of God than people who are misguided for all the wrong motivations? But yes, they were misguided in their praise. So here we see this great joy erupting from the disciples' hearts. There's one emotion, the emotion of the people. But now let's focus in on Jesus and see the emotion of Jesus Christ. Verse 41 says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Wept. There's only three times in the Bible where Jesus weeps. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. He wept in Gethsemane. We find that from Hebrews 5, verse 7. Strong crying with tears when he was praying that God would deliver him. And God said, no, you're going to have to drink the cup. He was weeping. His soul was in anguish to the point of death. And this is the third one right here. Jesus weeps here over Jerusalem. There's two different Greek words. When Jesus was weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, the word there in the Greek means to shed tears inaudibly. So you're not making any sounds, but tears are streaming down your face. That's what hap is happening at Lazarus' tomb. The word here means to wail. It's what you do at a funeral. When someone has died, there's loud wailing. So Jesus is not silent here. He's, he's weeping loudly and profusely. You can almost imagine his sides heaving. And he's, he's racked with sobs and he's uttering this, this lament, this grievous uh, mourning that's going on. I think the reason is because Jesus is almost like he's seeing in a vision what's going to happen to this very city within 40 years' time. He sees its end. He sees the tragic destruction that's going to come upon this city. He's viewing the death of Israel. He's viewing its death, and he, it's almost as though he's, he's seeing the funeral of God's beloved old covenant people. He's seeing... His final judgment come upon Israel and wipe them out. And the Romans are going to come in and destroy the city, destroy the temple. The people will be massacred. It's going to be 40 more years until the coffin is lowered into the ground, but he's already in vision form seeing what's going to happen. And this reveals two things. His words in verses 42, 43, and 44 reveal two things to us. The first one is they reveal Jesus' compassion for the lost. Notice verse 42. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, 
but now they've been hidden from your eyes. See that word peace? It's a salvation word. Peace with God. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's a salvation term. These are the things which make for peace, but they're hidden from your eyes. You can't see them. Peace with God. Reconciliation. You see, sinners are estranged from God. They're like, we always use the bridge illustration. They're on two different sides of a great chasm, and we can't jump over. We're cut off separated from God. Peace with God means Jesus draws us together. We're one again. We're united to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But these things were hidden from their eyes. They couldn't see the peace. Look, look at verse 44, the very end. Why did all this happen to them? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now what is that all about? God had visited his people in the person of Jesus, and they didn't recognize it. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. God, God showed up amidst the creatures that he made, and they couldn't see him. They didn't know he was there. Why did Jesus come? Why did God visit this planet? On a mission of mercy, a mission of salvation, a mission to reconcile lost sinners. Number one, it was hidden from their eyes. They were blinded to it. Number two, they couldn't recognize him when he did show up. And Jesus knows salvation was hidden from them. They didn't recognize their king when he visited them. And what does that cause him to do? He weeps. He laments. It's almost like the prophet Jeremiah the whole book of Lamentations where Jeremiah is lamenting the destruction of God's people in the Old Testament. Jesus becomes like a new covenant Jeremiah and he's lamenting and weeping over God's people that are going to be destroyed in less than 40 years. There is a great mystery here to me. A great mystery. The mystery is that God is sovereign and God is compassionate at the same time. <laughs> and I have a hard time putting those two pieces together. If you really stress the sovereignty of God and salvation, you understand that God has predestined all things. That God has elected a people. That He's chosen a people to be saved. That there's no way they cannot be saved. God will bring it to pass. We know that He has compassion on whom He has compassion, and He has mercy on whom He has mercy. That it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. We know that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Jesus knew He came into the world because the Father had given Him a people, and He came to get them. He came to save those people. So Jesus understands the sovereignty of God. But that doesn't stop Him from these racking sobs when He sees the eternal fate, not just the temporal fate, but the everlasting fate of his covenant people ending up in hell for all eternity. You see, if we so stress the sovereignty of God that we don't believe Jesus has true compassion for lost people, we're missing part of the character of our God. I don't know how those two go together. You know, we, we can come away with thinking, well, God is just uncaring. He's unfeeling. He's just sovereign. He's put this whole thing into motion. He doesn't feel anything. That's not true. Jesus is God personified. Jesus shows us what God is like. Here's the heart of God. And verse 41, weeping over a people who are going to hell. 
Can, can you wrap your mind around a sovereign God who's predestined all things from eternity, but desperately loves and cares and has compassion and pity on poor perishing sinners? And we shouldn't take the one side or the other. It's both and. That's why you can have scriptures like 1 Timothy 2.4, that God does not desire, I'm sorry, that's not right. Uh, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or he could say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, those of you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to um, cover you over like a hen covers over her chicks to protect, but you were not willing. So there's that aspect of God where he's compassionate and he shows pity. But that doesn't negate this other side over here that he is a sovereign God and does all his own will. And if you can't put those two together, don't worry about it. I can't, and I don't worry about it. I just believe them. That they're both scripture, right? <laughs> I like to try to, I like to say I'm a biblicist, which means I try to, as much as I can, base my life on the word of God. And if I can't understand it, Spurgeon used to say, I care not a straw, <laughs> whether I can understand it or not. All I care is that I'm biblical. If I'm telling you the book, the word of God, then I'm on safe ground. And here, this is the book. Jesus wept over sinners who were perishing. So, what, what that causes me to ask is, am I anything like my Lord? Do I have any compassion on perishing sinners? Do I have the heart of Jesus at all? Have I ever wept one tear for someone who's going to hell? You know? I can, also, well, I can say, well, you know, my, that's my personality. I'm just not an emotional person. That's true. I'm not. <laughs> not very much. But that doesn't let, give me off the hook because I have cried in my life and for much lesser things than the eternal fate of someone who's going to hell. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul, this whole thing. Does any passage of Scripture jump to your mind when you read about Jesus weeping? Yes. Chapter 9. That's exactly what came to my mind. Romans chapter 9. Let me read you the first three verses. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. You see how he has to, he has to bring all these evidences in because he, what he's about to say is so outlandish that they never believe him unless he says, I'm not lying to you. This is true. My conscience testifies that I'm telling you the truth. So believe me, what I'm, what I'm about to tell you, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now who were these people he's talking about? Who are the brethren? Israel. Israel is. What did he mean by wishing that he could be accursed and separated from Christ? Go to hell. Go to hell. Now he knows he can't do that because of what he's just written in it, chapter 8 verse 39 that no, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It can't happen that Paul would go to hell, but he could wish. That's how strong his longings were for the salvation of Israel. Now, turn the page, chapter 10, and notice what he says in verse 1. Brethren, in other words, Israel, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, Israel, is for their salvation. Here we have two bookends. I could wish I would go to hell if Israel would be converted. My heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. What comes in between those two bookends? 
chapter 9. What's that all about? God's sovereignty and electing a people. Paul knew that not all Israel were going to be saved. He knew it. God hadn't chosen all descendants of Abraham to be saved. He chose a remnant. But that didn't stop his heart from breaking for him. That didn't stop him from praying for them. That didn't stop him from desiring that they would be saved. See, Paul had caught something of the heart of Jesus Christ to have compassion for lost people. And I fear most of us just don't have very much of that. And that we would do well to grow in this aspect. And we ought to pray that God would give us more of that. So that when we go out to witness to somebody, we're not just doing our duty. We care about that person that we're on their doorstep or that's walking by that street or who's in that park. That we really do desire that they're saved eternally. So that's the first thing that we can learn from Jesus' words. His compassion for lost sinners. Second thing we learn is that God will judge those who reject His mercy. He will do it. It may take a long, long time. It took a long time for Israel. Centuries. God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet. And they rejected the message of the prophets. The prophets told Israel to repent and turn back to God. The prophets told them to flee idolatry and repent of their idolatrous ways. And they continued on and on and on. Finally, after all the prophets were spurned, God sent His only begotten Son. And Jesus comes to this earth. And Jesus speaks to the nation of Israel and urges them to follow Him back to God. And most of the nation reject Jesus Christ. And even then, it's 40 more years after they crucify Him. But finally, judgment falls upon the nation of Israel. Let me tell you about that judgment. It happened between the years 67 and 70 A.D., but the climax came in 70 A.D. There was a Roman general by the name of Titus Vespasian who was sent to subdue the Israelites because they had revolted against Rome's rule. So he came there and he built a barricade around the entire city of Jerusalem. That's what Jesus is mentioning here. He says in verse 43, The days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So what this Roman general Titus did is he had his soldiers build this barricade, this wall around the city, all the way around. Now why would he do that? Do you know what their warfare tactics were? Back in those days, the way you won a war is you starved out the people. You laid siege against them so that nobody can come into the city bringing food and nobody can escape and go out. Once the food supply in that city is gone, people start starving to death. And so after five months of this siege, uh, Titus led his, his soldiers through the gates of that city and the people were in such a weak and pitiable condition that they had no problems subduing everybody. They actually killed 600,000 Jews. So that's, if I'm not mistaken, um, I might be mistaken, but I think in the Civil War there was about half a million people killed. This is more than all the people that were killed during those four years of our war here in the United States. And it happened very, very quickly. He just massacred them. Against his orders, they 
burnt down the city. His soldiers didn't listen to their commanding officers. They started lighting the, the city on fire. And they actually burnt the temple. And the, all the gold that was in that temple was melted. And it was melted into the cracks of the stones around it. And so the soldiers trying to get the gold were prying the stones apart. And that literally fulfilled Jesus's prophecy in Matthew 24. Not one stone will be left standing upon another. All will be torn down. That's why they're getting the gold out of the cracks. Everything, every stone was torn apart. What this tells me is that God's judgment may be delayed, but not forever. It is sure to come. Abs it's like the second coming. Judgment is coming when Christ returns. Now, he may wait a long, long time, but he's coming. It reminds me of the flood. There was a man by the name of Methuselah. His name means, when he dies, it will come. Guess who was the oldest man in the Bible? Methuselah. Lived 969 years. When he died, you know what happened? The flood came. God waited and waited, and he allowed this man to get... 700 years old, 800 years old. He's just waiting. See, I don't think God delights in judgment. I believe it's a strange work. He does exercise judgment because he's just. But he waits and he tarries. But it will come. Make no mistake about that. Judgment is coming upon our world one day. For those who reject the Son of God and His message of grace and the gospel. It reminds me of... Uh, the passages we have there in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Or if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. How much severer punishment do you think that he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Statements of fact. I will repay. I will judge my people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's what happened to Israel in 70 AD. They fell into the hands of the living God, and God had his purposes of judgment Exercise towards this unbelieving, covenant-breaking people, and they were destroyed. The temple was destroyed and never has been rebuilt. Judgment came. So we learn the heart of Jesus, compassion for lost people, but also we see that judgment will come against a people that reject the mercy of God. Now, let's draw this down to a conclusion. How would the Holy Spirit have us to apply this text to our lives? Well, there are things I believe that we should imitate about these disciples. These disciples received Jesus as their king. That's good. They did homage to him. They submitted to him. They praised him unanimously, joyfully, loudly, biblically. It's true that they were fickle because probably some of the same people that were rejoicing here were the same ones that were shouting crucify him less than a week later. So they were fickle, they were flaky, you could say. <laughs> so in one, one respect, we don't want to emulate them. But when it comes to those God-honoring attributes, we ought to imitate their example. We ought to be those that receive Jesus as our King, our Lord and Master. 
And we ought to be those who have a robust, uh, lively, joyful praise in our God. And we ought to pray that we would be true and steadfast in our devotion to Him rather than fickle like the crowd was. But I think we should also imitate our Lord, especially when it comes to His compassion. Does that convict anybody today <laughs> to see Jesus weeping over these people yes. and to say, I don't know that I've ever shed a tear in my life. Now, what's the matter with me? Is it that I just don't believe that they're going to go to an eternal hell and suffer the torments of the damned? No, I, I do believe that. Why doesn't it affect me? Does it affect you like it affected Jesus? There was a great evangelist by the name of George Whitfield in the 1700s. One of my two greatest heroes, he and Charles Spurgeon, apart from Jesus Christ and the Apostles. I'm talking about modern-day church history. Those are my two buddies, my two guys. I want to spend some time in heaven talking to those two fellows. George Whitfield used to preach this all the time. He said, you blame me for weeping. Because when he would weep, it would be unusual for him tears not to stream down his face as he's weeping to the crowds. You blame me for weeping, but how can I help it? when you will not weep for yourselves, though your immortal souls are on the verge of destruction. So here's a man who is gripped by the eternal fate of the people that he's talking to. Oh, that, how that would change our lives if God would just help us to see and really feel the eternal fate of those we're speaking to. So, my brothers and sisters, we need to let Christ's compassion move us to pray for the lost, even weep for them and especially go to them and speak to them, the only message that can save them. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your compassion to come upon us. Lord, help us not to be unfeeling, dead, when it comes to caring about people. Lord, how wicked is that, that we would not care about others? Lord, there are people in our lives. All of us have people in our lives that are not saved. Lord, would you break our hearts for them, that we might pray earnestly for them. I pray that the, the beauty of Jesus Christ displayed in our text today would become more and more a part of our lives. Make us into the image of your Son, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.